Right. We will return to the series on the attributes of God this Sunday. And uh, last time, you who were here, we talked about the immutability of God or the unchangeability of God, meaning that God do not, does not change in his nature, in his character, in his promises, in his purposes. God does not change. He has decreed from before time existed, from before anything existed, that he will accomplish. That which he has set out to do, he will truly do. There's no, no, no change in his plans or in his purposes. If he has decided, if he has his decreed to save a certain amount of people, a, a particular people, he will save that people. There is no changing of his mind or his purposes in any way. Now, we, 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 last time we saw that there, were, there are a few texts who speaks about the fact that God does not change, most notably Malachi 3, 6, verse 6, which says that God do not change, does not change. But there are people who claim that God changes, that there is change in God, and they, they claim that the Bible says that God changes. That there, is, there are texts in the Bible that, that very clearly says that God changes. So we looked at that. We looked at Exodus 32, very, very um, popular text among those who claim that God changes, where it, it, it's, in a, it's about the, the Israelites, they are in the wilderness. Uh, they have rebelled against God. They have created a golden calf. And now God is telling Moses, who is up on the mountain, that he will destroy this people and he will build a new people from Moses. And Moses intercedes for the people and he, he intercedes before God that please do not destroy them. Remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And uh, there it says that God changed his mind. God changed his mind. And so they claim that, look here, here is a prime example of the fact that God changes. His mind can change. So what do we do with that? Well, we, we considered the text. We saw it was a narrative text, text telling a narrative, not a didactic text, not something trying to teach us how God theoretically is, but a narrative. And this, this particular text, this verse that says that God changes, we can see the use of phenomenological language, which is an expression which tells how something appears to us rather than how it theoretically is. And we have those kinds of expressions ourselves. We talk about sunset and sunrise, but the sun is not actually rising and setting. It's just expressions we use, how, they, how things appear to us. But in reality, we know it, it's, it is the earth who is rotating around its own axis and, and all that. But the Bible uses the same kind of language, and this was one of them. And it was a text... To show us how God appears to us. That when we repent, when we change, when we pray for people, God seemingly changed from punishment to salvation. So the text wasn't teaching that God actually changes, but that we 
change, and as a consequence of that, God changes his purpose, or his, his not his purpose, his, uh, what's the word, what he will do with those who repent before him. It is a text that teaches us about prayer, to pray to God, to pray, to intercede for those who are rebellious to him. So, that was last time, the immutability of God. This Sunday, we will consider the next attribute, which is the spirituality of God. The spirituality of God, which means that God is a spirit being, which means that he is immaterial, which means that he is invisible. So he's a spirit being, he's immaterial, and he is invisible. And when you say immaterial, in, in English you have that strange sense to it that's not, that it's unimportant, but that's not the meaning here. When it's immaterial means it's, it's without material, without physical composition, without a physical body. God is not made up of parts, body parts. It's not made up of a head and, and feet and so forth. He is without dimensions, without space, without material. He's immaterial, does not have a body. That is what immaterial means. Then, therefore, he is, of course, invisible. That which does not have a material body is invisible. But God is not unique in being a spirit being. There are other entities, other beings, which are called spirits, holy angels, unholy angels, are called spirit beings. Hebrews 1.14 very clearly says that. Are they, referring to angels, are they not ministering spirits? Sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So angels are spirit beings. And man, humans, are also said to have a spirit. We are said to have a spirit. Now, the Bible uses the word spirit and the word soul interchangeably to refer to the same reality. Isaiah 26, for example, says that at night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. There is a we see in the Bible the words soul and spirit and sometimes heart, conscience, is used interchangeably of the same reality, the immaterialness of our being. Luke 1 also talks about this. Mary says in Luke 1 verses 46 and 47, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So in the same same two verses in the same context, there are both the word soul and spirit used of the same reality. So when it comes to man, we, we are made up of, uh, of both material, body, and immaterial, spirit or soul. But with God, we find pure spirit. There is no body part to him, but only spirit. He's a pure spirit. The God-man, Jesus, has a human nature like us. He has a body. He is a 
physical body in his human nature, but the divine nature, the divine essence is pure spirit. There is no materia in that. So, when we talk about the spirituality of God, we mean that God is spirit and he is pure spirit. He is immaterial. He does not have a physical body. Now, this might seem very, very uh, straightforward, very obvious, something that we Christians claim, but not all Christians or people who call themselves Christians would agree to this. We find the Mormons who would claim that God actually has a physical body, that God has flesh and bones. For some reason, he doesn't have blood, but he has flesh and bones, so he has a physical body. Um, I don't... I'm not quite sure why they claim that blood is such a bad thing, but he doesn't have blood, but he has flesh and bones, so he has a physical body. And uh, they, they get that from a variety of places, most from their own so-called Bible, Book of Mormons. But they also claim that the Bible, the Bible we use, the real Bible, says that God has a body. There are verses that, that speaks to the fact that we can see God's body parts, that he has a physical body. And, uh, well, is it so? Uh, have, we, have we missed something? Are the Mormons right? Is it actually so that God has a physical body, that he has body parts? Well, let's look at a few passages and just quickly survey them. I'll just quickly read them so you, you don't have to. You can read, turn up to them. That's, that's probably good. Put your Bibles to a good use. 2 Chronicles 16. The book that never, no one ever reads. 2 Chronicles. No. I'm just, just kidding. Everybody reads Second Chronicles at least once a year. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, which says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. For the eyes of of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. Okay? There we have one text. Let's turn to another one. I'll comment a little on this text a little bit later. Let's turn to Isaiah 53, the greatest chapter in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. You should all have a bookmark on Isaiah 53. Text about the suffering servant, God's suffering servant, the great prophecy about Christ. Verse 1 says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Can the arm of the Lord be revealed? Seems like it. And jump forward a few chapters. Isaiah 59. Last text we'll, we'll look at for this, this section. Isaiah 59 verse 1. Which says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Hmm. So, does, the, does God have eyes, an arm, hands, ear? Is that what it's, is it, is it talking about his physical eyes, his physical arm, his physical hands and ear? Well, 
most of you, and I believe all of you would say, no, of course not, this is, that's nonsense. We, we can all see directly from the text that this, is, this has nothing to do with describing a, 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 um, a physical reality about God. These texts are figures of speech. They are anthropomorphic language. They are telling us something about God in words that we can understand rather than actually telling that God has body parts. Now God is, is, is so mysterious, he's so uncomprehensible to us that sometimes the Bible has to use language that does not actually tell about who or how God is made up, but is, is, is using language that we can understand with our finite fleshly minds that only understand flesh and blood and bones and, and that which is material. And these are such texts, they are pictures conveying something about God that we otherwise wouldn't be able to understand. So when, when Second Chronicles talks about the eyes of the Lord, it is, is not saying that he is, he's looking at one thing at one time, then quickly running to the next place and looking at that thing and, and being just a quick runner, running everywhere to and fro looking at things, or that he has a billion eyes, like a billion small surveillance cameras rigged up everywhere. No. It's talking about his omnipresence, his, his, his presence everywhere. There is nothing and no one who is hidden from God. Nothing happens that he doesn't know about. Nothing can happen unless he knows about it. It's a, talk, it's, it's a text about the omnipresence of God. And Isaiah 53, which, which talked about the arm of the Lord, that it is revealed. Well, that is a, a text about his om, om, omnipotence, his almightiness, that his arm is so, is so strong, it is so powerful, that it, it is revealed to everything and everyone. Romans 1 says that, they have no excuse, those who hate God, those who are the enemies of God, because his powers and invisible attributes are displayed in nature. In all of creation, God's almighty power is displayed. His arm, it's a picture of his power. And uh, Isaiah 59, which talked about the hand and the air, or the hands and the air of the Lord, shows us that God is a saving God, that his, his hand accomplishes that which he has set out to do. He saves those he has decreed to save. His hand's always there, steering things, moving things, forming things, forming us to vessels of glory instead of vessels of wrath. His ear is... It's a picture for his, his ability to hear our prayers. We can be weak, we can, we can be down, and our prayers might only be uttered in the innermost being of ourselves, but still God hears it. He doesn't need an audible voice to hear us, but he hears even in the, 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 the most innermost part of our beings, in the darkest play, prayer closet. God is there. He hears you. So these are all Texts about his power, his, his presence, his knowledge of everything. It is pictures of him. Rather than being 
a theoretical description of who he is. So um, we know that God does not have physical body parts, but that he is a spirit. And how do we know that? We have a primary text for that. It's John 4, 24. We'll turn there in just a moment. But before that, before we go through that text, and we'll spend a little time there, I want us to see also the other things that I talked about, that he's invisible. So let's begin there. John 1. Let's turn there. John 1, 18. The beginning of the Gospel of John in the prologue of John, which is really the prologue of, of, uh, of Jesus Christ. It's talking, it's revealing Jesus Christ, him coming to the world, his incarnation. So in, in the beginning of John, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So here's a very undeniable statement. No one has seen God at any time. Let me tell you what it means. It means that no one has seen God at any time. It means what it says, and it says what it means. That no one, no created being ever has at any time seen God. He is invisible. We cannot see him with our physical eyes. It's impossible. If anyone comes up to you and claims that they have seen God... I saw God this morning. You can write them off as, in best case, ignorant, or in worst case, a heretic. Because the Bible very clearly says that God is invisible. He cannot be seen with physical eyes. He is only revealed in and through Christ. The only begotten God. Only by coming to him. Only by uh, believing in him. Listening to him. Do we get a glimpse of God. And not a a, a physical glimpse. As as we can see a glimpse of of something. Maybe the snow outside. But we get a glimpse of the the, the invisible God. Not without physical eyes. But it's it's a spiritual vision. We see him spiritually. We, we, we listen to Christ, we listen to his words, we obey him, and we can understand who God is. We can have a relationship with him. Jesus says in, later in the, the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. It's by listening to Christ, by believing in Christ, By trusting him that we see God, that we see the Father. So that is his, that is our seeing him, not physically, but spiritually. But how then can we we know that that the spirit does not have a physical body? Is Is there any text that talks about that? Well, yes. Turn a few pages back to Luke 24, verse 39. This is post-resurrection. Jesus has risen from the grave. He He is with the disciples again. He talks to them. And this is what he says in verse 39. 
See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Clearly, our our Lord, the the God-man, had a physical, has a physical body. He has a human nature. They can, they could touch him. They could, they could see the wounds in his hands and in his side. But he contrasts this, this having a physical body, with the fact that a spirit does not have a physical body. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. He shows us that. Without doubt, that that something that is purely spirit, like God, cannot have a physical body. So then, now that we know these things, that God is invisible, that he, if he is a spirit, which is, he cannot have a physical body, cannot have flesh, he cannot have bones... What do we mean by the fact that God is spirit? Where is that text that says that God is spirit? John 4, verse 24. Let's turn there. It's our primary text for this Sunday. John 4. And we'll we'll read a little bit about the context as well. So we'll begin from verse 7 in John 4. This is what it says. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him 
must worship in spirit and truth. Let's end there. So here we have the story of of Jesus and the the Samaritan woman. You all know this story. I've read it many, many times. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He's passing through Samaria. He has has, uh, stopped, paused uh, in a city called Sychar in Samaria. And there he now stops and he, he rests and his disciple has left him. They have gone into the city to buy food. And then this woman comes to the, to the well where Jesus is. And he starts speaking to her. Now this is, for, for us, maybe not so surprising. But for the Jews, it would, this would have been very, very surprising that Jesus, a Jewish man, would speak to a Samaritan and a woman nonetheless. Samaritans were seen as half-Jews, having intermarried with with pagans, having mixed the the worship of Yahweh with the worship of idols. So they were very despised, they were very looked down on by by Jews, by Jewish leaders. And uh, now a Jewish man is speaking to a Samaritan woman. And this would have been uncustom for it would have been uncustom for a Jewish man to speak to a Jewish woman if that woman was not his wife men did not speak to other men's wives they spoke to their own and to men the women had their own place in the temple the men were the only ones who allowed to to come close to the the holy of holies and the the the, 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 the holy part of of the temple, but the women had their own parts, and the, the pagans even, even further out. But now, Jesus, who by some was considered a rabbi, is speaking to this Samaritan woman. And uh, this would have been very surprising, even offensive to Jews. We can see from his disciples' reaction in, in verse 27 that when they returned, they were amazed. Amazed. They were like, Whoa, what are you doing? Now, the second thing about this is, that's unordinary is, is the actual conversation that Jesus is having with this woman. He's asking her, her, her to give him water. Please give me water. Now, uh, she is, of course, surprised by this request. And she, she asked, how is it that you speak to me? A Jewish man speaks to a Samaritan woman. Now, his Jesus' response shows exactly why Jesus is speaking to her. Verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He is giving her a revelation that he can offer her so much more than mere water. He can give her living water, which is a picture of eternal life, salvation, reconciliation with God. Now, this woman, like Nicodemus in the the previous chapter, chapter 3, doesn't really seem to grasp the the spiritual reality to this this offer. So uh, she she protests and she asks, how is it that you are going to give me water? You have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. She 
even compares Jesus to Jacob, who dug the well and claims that surely Jesus is not greater than, than their father Jacob. In a simple response, Jesus shows that he's not referring to physical water, but something greater. Jacob's well can only give water that will make you thirsty again. It's only physical water. But Jesus can give eternal life. He can give you water that will never make you thirsty. Thirsty for spiritual life. Thirsty for for reconciliation with God. Thirsty to know the true and only God. Jesus is ready to give this woman eternal life. Still not fully grasping this spiritual reality, she, the woman still asks for this drink, this water, and she still thinks it's physical water. It's, it's, it's normal water so that she doesn't have to go to the well again, doesn't have to draw water. She's merely trying to, to have a convenience so she can, she can stay at home, continue with her everyday life. Now Jesus, knowing fully well the sinfulness of every man, and in particular of this woman now in this text, he knows she is an adulterer. So he says, go, call your husband and come here. Uh Uh-oh. Now what do you do if you're the woman? She knows that he knows. I have no husband, she responds. This is indeed the correct answer. She has no husband. She has had five husbands, meaning she has been in a lot of adultery. And now the, the one she is living with now is not her husband. She is right now at this present moment when she's talking to Jesus in adultery. And Jesus knows this, of course. He points it out to her in verse 18. This is important. Jesus is ready to offer eternal life to whomever who would ask of it. But sinners need to understand and recognize that they are sinners, that they need to repent to have eternal life. It's like Jesus is saying, I know you live in sin, but I am offering you living water, eternal life, so that you can be reconciled with God, so that you can have forgiveness for all your adultery and all other sins in your life. I'm not offering you mere water so that you can go back to your normal life and continue with your sin. I'm offering you a new life, a new heart. Reconciliation with God. Now, finally, the woman seems to grasp this spiritual reality that Jesus knows her sinful life, her her adultery. She, she understands that she can no longer hide. There's no, there's no point in trying to, to, to play the, the ignorant game. I don't know what you're talking about. He, she knows that he is sent from God. He is a prophet. He knows God. And what do you do 
when you talk with someone who knows God, who is sent from God, who is a prophet in the true and real sense. Well, you ask the, the thorny questions, the hard questions that you have not been able to answer, or anyone else for that matter. We can, we can picture that she has gone to several priests, or some kind of priests, spiritual men, and asked this question, where it is right to worship. This is now her question. The one question she wants the answer to, where is it right to worship? Is it on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, or is it in Jerusalem where the Jews worship? Now this, of course, clearly reflects her unregenerated heart, that she's still thinking physically, she's still thinking that God is like us, God is having a nature like us. You need to go to the right place, you need to be uh, in a physical location to worship him correctly to, so that he can hear you. And now she wants to know, where is that place? Now, Jesus himself, being God, of course, gives a very profound and important answer from verse 21 again. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. Now, it is easy to miss the point here. Jesus is not saying it doesn't matter where you worship God. He's not saying that uh, it's only how you worship that matters. That's not the point. We know from the Old Testament how important it is that the worship happened in Jerusalem, in the place that God had elected at the temple, at the tabernacle, that they didn't offer up sacrifices anywhere else on any other mountain, but actually went up to Jerusalem to worship, worship Yahweh. We know that worship that did not fall in line with what God had commanded was punished. There could not be strange fire. There could not be unordained priests or priests that were not of the, the tribe of Levi. It was very important. All these things are written down so that we can understand how important it is that we listen to God when we worship him. That it is carried out in the way he has commanded. And one of those things was to worship in Jerusalem at the temple and not anywhere else. But now that Jesus had come or has come, the full revelation of God has come to men. So an hour is coming when the temple will no longer have its intended purpose. And indeed it will stop. We don't have temple worship today. There's no temple in Jerusalem that you go to to offer up your sacrifices. True worshippers 
will worship God in a way that reflects God, that displays who he really is, truth and spirit. So Jesus is saying here that the time is coming to worship the Father in a more complete way, when the veil will no longer be there, but God will fully be revealed in Jesus Christ. But because the presence of God can never be contained to one single place, one mountain, one city, not Jerusalem, not Mount Gerizim, nowhere in the whole universe, nothing can completely contain God because, of course, he is a spirit. He is without size, without dimensions. His body is, it doesn't mean that his body is so large that it covers Jerusalem and Grissom and, and everywhere else on, on earth. But it means that God is spirit. God is spirit. He is everywhere. He's invisible. He's without body, without composition, without size. He is spirit. Verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. His presence is not limited to any single place or location. Precisely because... He is spirit. So if you want to worship God in a way that reflects him, in a way that that shows who he truly, truly is, that honors him, you must absolutely worship him in truth and spirit. It is a direct command. This is important. It is the way to worship him. It's the way he commands us to do it. We cannot come up with other ways, how ingenious they might seem, and replace that with the way that God has commanded here. No, this is the way, the only way to worship God in spirit and truth. So if God is spirit, and the spirit does not have a body, and God is invisible, then we cannot worship him with pictures or idols or statues or any other physical thing, whatever it might be, that depicts him, that can be seen with physical eyes. God absolutely forbids the use of idols in worship of him. He says that already in the second commandment, in Exodus 20. We cannot make idols. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of that which is in heaven, above or on the earth beneath, or in the water or under the earth. You shall worship them and serve them. You shall not worship them and serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's a jealous God. If you make an idol, whatever it might be, something physical, something material, and worship that, that is idolatry. 
And God is a jealous God. So you have the very clear words and command of the Lord before you. He is spirit. He does not have flesh. He does not have bones. He is spirit. He's invisible. He's immaterial. We cannot see him with our physical eyes. He forbids worship. The needs to use such idols, pictures, icons to convey something about God. So how then could you possibly say that you are worshipping God if you have a picture of him on an icon or anything physical at all? In your worship, how can you call it true worship? How can you call that worship that honors God, that reflects who he truly is, that reflects his nature, his divinity, when it is so very clear that he disallows it? It is being disobedient to God to worship him through icons, pictures, idols, God is only revealed in Christ. He is only revealed in the perfect image of the invisible God, in the God-man, the only begotten God. Not with a physical vision or a physical revelation, but a spiritual revelation, an understanding, a relationship with God, worshipping him in truth. And understanding and being obedient to him, to what he has said, to his commands, is to worship him in truth. Understanding and being obedient to the fact that God is a spirit, immaterial, without body, invisible, and only revealed in Christ, is being obedient and worshiping him in spirit. This is what the Samaritan woman needed to understand what we need to understand when she understood this she asked for the Messiah the one that God would send because she realized that is what she needs now she needs God's Messiah she needs someone to intercede before her before God she needs a savior. And she believed. And many Samaritans with her. This was the whole purpose of Jesus staying here at this city in, at this time to offer salvation to this woman, this Samaritan woman, and to many other Samaritans. And he offers that same salvation to all who hear his word. This day. So, do you understand who God is? Do you worship Him in the way He has commanded you? The way that He has revealed Himself as Spirit, as the one true God. Indeed, if you have read these words, you have comprehended them, 
And you still do not believe this. You still believe you must have pictures and icons and idols and everything else in your worship. You are disobedient towards the God who requires you to worship him in truth and spirit. This is what God requires of you. How you are to worship him. Not with physical eyes or physical vision, but with spiritual understanding and obedience. This is what he requires. This is what honors him. Do you do that? That is what I ask of you. And for those, of course, who have not understand, who understood who God is, has not bowed their knees, who, like the Samaritan woman, were unregenerated, had hearts that, that were fixed on physical water, on, 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 on physical life, did not understand spiritual realities, you can, like this Samaritan woman, go to Jesus, ask for eternal life, living water, and he will give it to you. He will give it to you. You must absolutely repent of all your sins like this woman had to do. But you will have eternal life. You will be reconciled with God. And then you will worship him in the true and only way that, you, that we must worship him in spirit and truth. This I tell to all of you who do not believe. So, that concludes this message. But um, please take it to heart. Realize how easy it is to worship God in an unworthy manner. To fall back to worshiping idols and crosses and, and pictures. They might be beautiful. They might be a very good work. But if they lead you to worship God in a way that does not reflect him, which is not a physical body, then you are not worshipping him in a true and real way. Let's remember that as we end this message with a prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of you in Jesus Christ that has come to us this Sunday morning. We ask that our understanding of you would indeed grow so that we find you in him, that our, we wouldn't rely on our physical eyes or our physical understanding, but our, our spiritual understanding of you would grow. We would see you spiritually in Christ as the saving God that you are, you who sent salvation to this Samaritan woman. Lord, we know that you are a saving God and you reveal yourself to those who are not worthy but very, very unworthy like we are, Lord. Oh, Lord, help us worship you in the right way, in the true way, the only way that you are a spirit and not a man. Oh, God, please help us communicate this truth to those around us, to those who do not know you, to those who are still ignorant and caught in their false worship, that worship false idols and false gods. Oh, Lord, help us communicate that this is the only way to worship the only God. Lord, 
have mercy on us and on our close and loved ones, our families, our friends. Lord, please send salvation to them as you sent it to the Samaritan woman. We ask this, that your name might be glorified in this time and in this place among this people. In Jesus' name, amen.